Welcome to Evangelistic Center Church. Well, this is Palm Sunday. Most everybody knows if you're a believer, you know what Palm Sunday is. Uh, we always celebrate Palm Sunday the week before Easter. Uh, and it, and it, it's a remembrance of Christ's triumphal entry into Jerusalem to celebrate Passover. Um, famously, people flocked to Jesus as he rode into town. They were throwing their garments on the ground and, and waving palm leaves, uh, throwing them in his path. And they were shouting. Anybody remember what they were shouting to Christ? They were shouting, Hosanna. Anybody remember what Hosanna means? Hosanna means save now. Uh, and, and if you can imagine the, the throng of people as they, they were flocking to Jesus and they're crying out, Hosanna. They were literally asking him to save them, to rescue them. Uh, one commentary even said that you could interpret Hosanna as long live the king. So whether it was long live the king or save now, either way, the people believed that Christ was entering into Jerusalem to rescue them from Rome. Of immediate importance to the people that welcomed Christ was deliverance from Rome. And there certainly were many that did not realize that Christ had come to do something far greater than rid them from Roman rule. He had come to rescue them from their sins. And certainly liberation from uh, from the oppressors, uh, that is a worthy cause to rejoice and to, and to tell our liberator how much we, we love him and to exalt him. But it was so much more than that. Christ had come to Rome in order that he would die. He came to Rome, uh, excuse me, Jerusalem. I don't know why I said Rome. He came to, he come into Jerusalem to suffer for the sins of the whole world. He was in Jerusalem to set free all that would accept his sacrifice. He was in Jerusalem to secure for the people who would trust in him, to secure for them eternity in the presence of God and to rescue them from eternal death apart from God. Anybody this morning, have you been rescued for eternity? Isn't that good news? I tell people all the time, if you can't think of any other reason to worship the Lord other than you've been saved from death, brought into newness of life and that heaven is your destination, you've got reason to be thankful. I want to read you the Palm Sunday story just real quickly out of Matthew chapter 21 before I get into the heart of my message. So if you'll turn there with me, Matthew 21, I'm going to begin at verse number 1. Matthew 21, 1, and it reads this way. When they approached Jerusalem and came to Bethpage at the Mount of Olives, Jesus then sent two disciples, telling them, Go into the village ahead of you. At once you'll find a donkey tied there with her colt. Untie them and bring them to me. If anyone says anything, do you say that the Lord needs them and he will send them at once? This took place so that what was spoken through the prophet might be fulfilled. Tell daughter Zion, see your king is coming to you, gentle, mounted on a donkey and on a colt, the foal of a donkey. The disciples went and did just as Jesus directed them. They brought the donkey and the colt. Then they laid their clothes on him and he sat on them. Very large crowd spread their clothes on the road, and others were cutting branches from the trees and spreading them on the road. Then the crowds who went ahead of him and those who followed shouted, Hosanna to the Son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest heaven. And when he entered Jerusalem, the whole city was in an uproar saying, Who is this? And the crowds were saying, This is the prophet Jesus from Nazareth of Galilee. Father, we ask today that you would make these words alive in our spirit. 
Father, that as we listen to what you have spoken to us through your word, that it would mold us and shape us, that it would redeem us and encourage us, Father, that we would use your word to to live more like you would have us live, to walk in the counsel of your ways. Father, change us by the word. Enlighten our hearing, Father, and teach us the truth that comes only from you. And it's in Jesus' name, amen. I want to begin this morning. We're talking about Palm Sunday and what we have received in Christ. And I want to begin today uh, with what our condition was before Christ. Because to really understand the significance of what Christ had come to do on that Palm Sunday before Passover, we first have to understand why he was there to begin with. In the Garden of Eden, Adam and Eve enjoyed face-to-face fellowship and communion with God. And when Eve and Adam ate of the forbidden tree, they plunged all of humanity into sin. And while that may seem like a doctrine that everybody would just wholeheartedly believes, not everyone understands that you and I are hopelessly bound in sin from the moment that we're born. We left, theologians like to call it the doctrine of original sin. In other words, that people when we're born, that we are sinful creatures. There are some who try to convince me that, well, we're not. You know, we're born innocent. And then at some point later in life that we sin. But really, I don't believe the Bible teaches that because you and I are hopelessly plunged into sin when we're born because Adam and Eve surrendered face-to-face fellowship with God. Maybe you could say it like this. Adam and Eve gave away their authority in the Garden of Eden. And so when, when God created them, He freely and openly communicated with them, but then Adam and Eve sinned and fellowship with God had been severed. Sin created separation. And if you ever try to figure out what sin means, and I've heard people try to they explain sin as a missing of the mark or doing something God doesn't want you to do or just doing bad stuff. Maybe that's the best way Enoki would explain it. But if you really want to know what sin is, sin is a separator. Sin separates us from God. And without Christ, we remain separated from God. Is that, is that true? Y'all still with me this morning? Sin separates. Sin created a separation from God. And we were hopelessly bound to sin with no way to free ourselves. This is our condition before Christ. And the Bible's pretty clear. It says, all have sinned. Everybody say all. Do I have anybody in here that is not an all? Okay, good. Everybody is part of an all. In 1 John, we read that. We read this also. If we say that we have no sin, then we are deceiving ourselves and the truth is not in us. Ephesians 2 says that we were without Christ, excluded from the citizenship of Israel, and that we were foreigners to the covenant of promise. Listen to this. We were without hope and without God in the world. That describes, our, that describes our state of affairs without Christ. We were hopeless and without God in the world. We were hopelessly enslaved to sin. No way to get out from under its oppressive power. And so when Jesus rides into Jerusalem on this first Palm Sunday, just as the prophet Zechariah had prophesied in Zechariah 9 to give himself as a sacrifice for the sins of the world, Christ's sacrifice would satisfy the sin debt that you and I owed. He would sacrifice and he would cover the sin debt that you and I owed. And in doing so, it would restore for you and I fellowship with God the Father and restoring our eternal destiny 
as living in heaven for out all of eternity. That's good news. To simply state this this way, to kind of package this in a way that's easily digestible. You and I, church, were sinners in need of a Savior, and Christ came to be that deliverer. And this is the reason that he rode into Jerusalem on that Palm Sunday. He came so that fellowship with the Father would be restored. And it's easy for you and I in a New Testament church in America where very few people in America truly understand real suffering. Uh, Few people really understand what it's like to genuinely suffer because we've been born in a country that we've enjoyed uh, decades and decades of peace and prosperity. Uh, We we, uh, are people that we think we're poor if we don't have the newest television or we don't get to eat steak or we don't have a newer car. And I don't know if you've priced new cars, but you can't afford one. <laughs> We've been trying to buy a new church van for the, for the kids on Wednesday. They're picking up like 60 kids on Wednesdays, which we did get a van this last week. It's an old van. Uh, it looks a little raggedy, but it's a good van. So we, we're going to do that, which as a sidebar, we really soon are going to need some of you to come volunteer to drive some vans. So be thinking about that, not only on Wednesday, but on Sunday mornings. We want to get some of these children to church. How many of you think that's a good idea? Amen. So the Lord is speaking that to your heart right now. He's just using me to do it. But that was our condition before Christ, that we were separated. And I know this is something I probably talk about maybe weekly, certainly monthly. I talk to you about what we were. And the reason I do is because I think it is so important for God's people to fully understand our situation, our status, our lot in life, our destiny before Christ and without Christ. That we understand our hopeless situation before Christ came to redeem us. And because if we understand that, when we're singing songs this morning like, he's still the same healer that he was back then. He's still the same deliverer as he was back then. He's still the same rescuer today as he was back then. Then it means something to you and I because we understand what we were back then. Amen? Because, you know, I tell people all the time, the, the board members and, and, uh, and even my family, I tell folks all the time, I don't really need a whole bunch of yes men. Now, I'm not going to lie to you, I love yes men. I mean, I love it. If anybody ever wants to come tell me that I did a good job, it's probably going to make me feel good. Probably you're like that, too. But I don't need yes men. I need people to tell me the truth. If something I'm doing stinks, I need somebody to tell me it stinks. Now, don't everybody show up Monday because you've had something to tell me. Make an appointment. I can't get to you all in one day. But I think somebody amen to that. It must have been Randy. So what I want, I don't always want to stand in front of you and talk about all the rosy things because that's what we love. I really want you to understand and appreciate the reason that Christ rode into town that day. It was because you and I, and you say, well, Pastor, no, I wasn't even born yet. You weren't. But the Bible's pretty clear that He has known you even from your mother's womb. That He has known you throughout the ages. Christ has always been and He knew you. And He knew when you would be born and to who. And I believe, now you can call me crazy, but I believe God even knew that you would be sitting here today. 
And if you say, I don't think he knows that, well, then you've limited what God can and cannot do. And I'm not bold enough to say that he can't know where I am or where I'll be. I want us to know the situation that the person is in when we don't have Christ. And to simply sum it up, sin separates. The people had been separated. You had the Sanhedrin and the Pharisees of the day that knew the law better than anyone else and they could quote it, but yet the Lord calls them blind guides because they knew what they had read, but they truly didn't understand it. And so Christ comes riding into town and the people were, save us, save us, save us. And many, I'm sure, were, were uh, clamoring that He would rescue them from the thumb of Rome. But, but there were certainly also some that recognized that the Messiah that God had promised was right before them riding in. And they knew that in this moment that they would be rescued from their sin. And that's why Christ rode into town that day. That's why He was in Jerusalem. That is our condition before Christ. But now that He comes, now that He is there, now that He is uh, arrived in Jerusalem to die, and He has died and been resurrected, now you and I can talk about our condition since. We can talk about our condition after Christ. And I think we would all agree that His sacrifice means that you and I could be saved. Does everybody agree with that? Is anybody in here, and this is not a trick question, is anybody in here willing to say, you don't think you need salvation? Good. Don't, I hope nobody raised their hand. You and I need salvation. And we would all agree that Christ's sacrifice means that you and I could be saved. And that certainly is true, but I want to take it a little further than that. I want to go back with you this morning. I want to go back 1,600 years before Christ rode into Jerusalem on that fateful Palm Sunday. 1,600 years before Palm Sunday in the book of Joshua, we read that Israel had come to the precipice of the Promised Land. They were about to cross the Jordan River. Y'all know the story well? They had arrived at the banks of the Jordan. They had camped out there for a while. Joshua was, was leading the charge. He was going to lead the people into the Promised Land. And God had promised Israel that that when they got there, that he would drive out the inhabitants of the land, and in doing so, he would make a way for Israel to inhabit their new home. Y'all familiar with that story? So you can imagine that if we were representing the nation of Israel, we've just showed up at the Red River, and we're going to go in and we're going to conquer Texas. Everybody except Travis. I don't know if Travis is here, but everybody except Travis would like that. Kind of think about it that way. They had showed up at the Jordan River and looking across the river, they could see the land of promise. And God had said, I will deliver this land into you because it was a promise that He had made. He says to Israel, I will drive out the inhabitants of the land before you and I will make a way for you to inherit or to inhabit your new home. That's where Israel was. And so I want to take that story up in the book of Joshua chapter 5. And this is literally just before Israel would go in to conquer Jericho. Just before Israel would go in and conquer Jericho. So they have taken a moment to celebrate Passover. Now if you recall, as Jesus rode into Jerusalem on Palm Sunday, why was he going? What, what was the uh, in-person reason that he was there? Well, he was going to celebrate Passover. Amen? Joshua chapter 5, start at verse 10. Joshua 5.10 while the Israelites camped at Gilgal on the plains of Jericho, they observed the Passover on the evening of the 14th day of the month. 
The day after Passover, they ate unleavened bread and roasted grain from the produce of the land. And the, and the day after they ate from the produce of the land, the manna ceased. Since there was no more manna for the Israelites, they ate from the crops of the land of Canaan that year. Verse number 12, read it again. And the day after they ate from the produce of the land, the manna ceased. Since there was no more manna for the Israelites, they ate from the crops of the land of Canaan that year. Now, celebrating the Passover, and, and hopefully you remember that Passover literally was the commemoration of Israel's exodus from Egypt. They celebrate Passover to remember that the Lord rescued them from Egypt. The death angel passed over and spared their children. So celebrating the Passover wasn't new for Israel. They'd been celebrating the Passover. You know that they wandered 40 years in the wilderness. Uh, as far as scholars know, they were celebrating Passover the whole time they were in the wilderness. They were celebrating it. This was just another one of those cele celebrations. But they're on the very threshold of entering into Canaan. And certainly as, as all of Israel stands literally on the banks of the river before the promised land, certainly it was in their hearts and their minds to remember the very first Passover as they celebrated their rescue from the land of Egypt and under the hand of Pharaoh. God had rescued them from Pharaoh. God had kept His promise that they would have a land to call their own. The journey from slavery in Egypt to the promised land, this journey from slavery to the promised land is one that would take over 40 years. And this 40-year-long journey was finally coming to an end. God, for Israel, had kept His promise. And they were standing there absorbing and taking in God's promise. They were on the very, very precipice of everything that God had promised them. Now, there's a small detail about this journey at the very end of the journey that, that I want you to see today. God had provided for Israel manna in the wilderness. He had provided manna for Israel the entire time that they were in the wilderness. So for 40 years, manna was a symbol of God's provision. Now, I don't even really like to eat leftovers the next day. So I'm not sure what I'd have done eating manna 40 years straight. It's easy for me to look at them and say, them ungrateful Israelites. But probably, even as much as you like ice cream, you'd probably get tired of it after 40 years. Well, maybe you wouldn't, but some of you would. Well, that's kind of what had happened with Israel. They've been eating the manna for 40 years. You can read in the Old Testament about the grumblers and the complainers. But they'd been eating. God had been providing. But as they stand here on the very, the very uh, doorway to the promised land, the Bible says that God had stopped sending the manna. Israel now was going to enjoy the resources and the food that had been provided in the promised land. The New American Commentary about this says this. I want to read this to you. God's people's entrance into the land of Canaan put an end not only to the wilderness manna, but also to their enemy's courage. Israel's consumption of the land's food was a symbol of its taking possession of the land. God had promised it a bounteous land with houses filled with all kinds of good things that you did not provide, wells you did not dig, and vineyards and olive groves you did not plant. And now Israel was enjoying the first fruits of that promise. Now, I hope you see what's happening here. The wilderness provision that God had provided for them was no longer needed by Israel because the promised land was going to provide everything that they would ever need. Do you see that? And what I especially like in Deuteronomy is where it says, to Israel that you will have houses 
filled with things you didn't provide. Wells that you didn't dig. Vineyards and olive groves that you did not plant. Doesn't that just sound like God that he would provide for you blessings that had nothing to do with you? That God would give you things that you were not responsible for? Has anybody besides me ever enjoyed a blessing from the Lord that came strictly at his hand that we had nothing to do with? You should all have raised your hand because you received the greatest blessing of all that you had nothing to do with when Christ died for you and you were saved. Here, Israel is enjoying, they're, they're on the very entrance to the promised land. And the provisions that God had made in the wilderness, they were going away. Because there was a new provision coming to them and it would be found in Canaan. Now, I want to show you something, so I'll be back here, don't leave me. I want to show you something in the New Testament out of Galatians chapter 3. I'm getting somewhere this morning. Galatians chapter 3, I want to start down at verse 23. Galatians 3, 23, I'll give you just a moment. Galatians chapter 3, verse 23. Before this faith came, we were confined under the law, imprisoned until the coming faith was revealed. The law then was our guardian until Christ, so that we could be justified by faith. But since that faith has come, we are no longer under a guardian. For through faith you are all sons of God in Christ Jesus. Now, there's something about the law that, that Paul is writing to Galatians in chapter 3 that I want you to see. The Bible tells us that the law was our guardian until Christ. Faith was operative in the Old Testament, but faith in Christ wasn't realized until Christ was revealed. Do you see that? Now, this guardian that Paul speaks of in Galatians, this guardian was the law. The law served as the guardian of the people. You can think of guardians like this. This is the best way that I can come up with to explain it to you. Parents entrusted the care of their children to this guardian. And some scholars said it could be a teacher. You read a lot about slaves in the, in the Old Testament uh, and in the New Testament. Uh, slaves in the New Testament. Uh, it's completely different than the kind of slavery we think about in America. This was people that many times they sold themselves intentionally into slavery, kind of like an indentured servant. But... Uh, this slave or this teacher, they would have the responsibility to care for and to protect, protect the children until they reached adulthood. Now, this person would see that they got the children to school. This person was responsible to care for the child. And probably this person, this guardian, even taught the children manners and morality. So the best way I could explain to you what Paul's talking about in relation to the guardian in Galatians 3, maybe in modern English you would think of it like this. Maybe a little bit like a nanny. Kind of makes sense? A little bit like a nanny. Nanny, uh, when you have parents that both work, uh, really you see it more with wealthier homes. If they hire somebody, they usually will move in. Uh, for you old people, it would be like Alice on the Brady Bunch. All right, if you've never heard of Alice from the Brady Bunch, raise your hand real quick. Have you all heard of Alice from the Brady Bunch? Wow, I'm not as old as I thought. But think about it a little bit like a nanny. And so uh, their position, this guardianship over the children, the position was temporary. This guardian only lasted until the child became an adult. You see this so far? So here in Galatians, what Paul is saying is that it was the law that served as our guardian. 
So, the law was a temporary protector and teacher with a purpose of leading us until Christ came. Are you with me so far? I'm going to say that again. The law was a temporary protector and teacher with a purpose of leading us until Christ came. So, here's what the law did. The law pointed out our wrongdoings and the law provided for us constant reproof. In other words, it was the law's job to correct us and to teach us right from wrong and to make sure that we lived according to God's principles. You're still with me? So the law, what the law did, the law ultimately, church, showed us that we needed a Savior and the law taught us that justification with God can come only through faith. It can never come through the law. Uh, David Campbell, he writes this, It's better to understand that the law did not lead us to Christ, but it was the disciplinarian until Christ came. The law was the disciplinarian until Christ came. So the reign of the law has ended with faith in Christ, and Christ delivered to believers the protective custody from the person and the harsh discipline of the law. So let's come back to Jerusalem this morning. Christ is entering into the city on Palm Sunday. Jesus has come to celebrate the Passover with his disciples. The spectacle of the crowd, the spectacle of the crowd that has come to town has to celebrate Christ with his disciples. They're clamoring to see Jesus. They're lauding him as king. We recognize that this illustrates that Christ had a messianic claim. Nobody there. I've heard people say, well, Christ never claimed to be God. Then what was he doing riding into town as the Messiah if he never claimed to be God? Why was he crucified if he never claimed to be God? Why did Israel hate him? Because he set himself up as God. Amen? So here on this first Palm Sunday, Christ rides into town and the people were crying before him, pleading for deliverance from Rome. But more importantly, Christ's presence was proof that he had come to be the long-awaited Messiah, that Christ had come to save people from their sin. And so this triumphal entrance by Christ was the very beginning of mine and your liberation from the guardianship of the law. Don't miss this. Christ's entrance into Jerusalem on that day was the beginning of our liberation from the law. It was our liberation from the guardianship of the law. Paul tells us, I just read it, Galatians 3, that the law was our guardian. The law pointed out our missteps. The law was to guide us. The law was also to let us know that we can never live up to the standard. And as Christ rides in on the very first Palm Sunday, it signals the beginning of our liberation from the guardianship of the law. And no place, I want to make sure, i, I, I got to add this in there. No place does the Bible say that the law was bad. Never. Matter of fact, the Bible says the opposite of the law. The Bible says that the law was good. I talked to you about this last week. That the law was good, but its rule over us was ending. And that's what Christ was riding into town to do, was to show the people that there was going to be a new and living way to come to God that would no longer require going through the law. Listen to Romans chapter 10, verse 4. Christ, it says in Romans 10, 4, Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. I, I did something this week that I said I would stop doing. I got in an online argument. Never 
in 51 years. I've been on Facebook 51 years. And never, it only seems like that. It was actually on YouTube, and I was watching a, cl I was watching a class about seminary, and this person had commented on there about, you're supposed to live the law, and you're still under the law. Christ is not. And, and what really got me, he said, Jesus wasn't God. And I, I broke my, my vow to never argue online again. And so after about 3,900 different goes back and forth, I finally said, I'll be saying nothing more. Nothing more. And, and I think it's sad because people don't realize the New Testament church. And here's what I want you to take home today. I think people don't realize this New Testament church. I think we don't really appreciate where we were. And because we don't really appreciate who we were without Christ, we don't rightly worship him today for what we have now. That, that's just what I think. He's riding into town on this Palm Sunday to signify that the law's guardianship was ending in, on the lives of his people. Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. So for Israel, you thought I forgot about the man. I haven't. For Israel, entering into the promised land meant that the Lord's provision to sustain them in the wilderness was no longer needed. You see that? As Israel enters into the promised land, it means that the provisions that the Lord had made for them to sustain them in the wilderness, the Bible even tells us that their shoes didn't wear out. The provision that they had in the wilderness was no longer needed. We just read that the manna ceased. The reason that the manna ceased to fall is because the people were entering into the promise that God had made them. The reason that the manna was ending is because they were taking possession of their promise. This land that Israel was going into, this land was rich and it was plenteous. And Israel, church, would enjoy the abundance in the new promised land. Israel would enjoy everything that God had promised them in their promised land. Remember when Joshua and Caleb came in and they come toting out grapes? that required two people to carry him? I mean, I like fruit. Promised land sounds pretty good. How about you? The provision that was required to sustain them in the wilderness journey was ending because the promised land had come. And what I want you to see today about this Palm Sunday, for us, Christ's entrance in Jerusalem on Palm Sunday signaled the end of something as well. The provision that you and I need to direct us to God was ending because the law was no longer our guardian. So just as Israel's provision in the wilderness stopped because the promised land was here, for you and I, the, the slavery, the heavy yoke of the law has been broken off of us and through Christ we stand here on the precipice of our promised land. And our promised land, His name is Jesus. And on that Palm Sunday, as Jesus rode into town, what it was signifying is that for, for once, finally for once, everything that you and I needed to be close to the Lord permanently, to have a right relationship with Him, we were standing at the very precipice of that, of that promise. See, Christ, Christ was saying, what you had before, kids, what you had before... He says this in another place. I did not come to abolish the law. Do you know why that was? Because God never says that the law was bad. It would be, to me, God would have been, would have been unfaithful to His own word if Christ would have come in and said, ah, the law, we're just going to get rid of that. It don't matter. 
That's not what happened. Get this with me. Pay close attention. That's not what happened. Christ did not come and take the law and tear it up. You got it in your hand because the law was still valid. What Christ did was He come and He fulfilled it. In other words, He lived that law perfectly. Everything you can read from Genesis 1 all the way through Malachi, every single thing that you read in there, morally and ceremonially, Christ fulfilled. And that law that served for the Old Testament saints, that law as a guardian that pointed them towards God's holiness, when Christ came, He said, you know what? I have lived that law perfectly. And now I have come to inaugurate for you, the Bible says, a new and living way. And so just for Israel, as the manna ended, for you and I, something came to an end on that Palm Sunday. Christ was ushering in a new kingdom and a new plan. And now you and I today, our guardian, our guardian's name, church, is not the law. Our guardian's name is the Holy Spirit. And it's the Holy Spirit that points us to Christ. It is the Holy Spirit that keeps us in check. It is the testimony of the Holy Spirit in the heart of the believer that makes sure that you and I know right from wrong and that we now have fellowship with God because we have a new guardian. And this new guardian has given us more than the law ever could. Am I, am I preaching this okay? I mean, I'm writing this sermon and I was about to have one of them old school runaways. I was working on it, I think Jay... I think Jay was in the office, uh, and I was working on it, and I said, Jay, I'm writing this sermon, and I'm about to, I'm about to have to just go outside and run around for a minute. And I really don't do that. That's really not my personality. I'm the guy that you see at the, at the concert standing like this, having the time of my life. The man has ceased because the man was no longer needed. And now something else changed for us on this Palm Sunday. Listen to what he said. The Bible says in Hebrews chapter 10. I'll start at verse 19. Hebrews 10, 19. Therefore, brothers and sisters, since we have boldness to enter the sanctuary through the blood of Jesus, he has inaugurated for us a new and living way. He has inaugurated for us a new and living way through the curtain, that is, through his flesh. And since we have a great high priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed in pure water, and let us hold on to the confession of our hope without wavering, since he who promised is faithful. Look at verse 23, it's on your screen. Look at that again. Let us hold on to the confession of our hope without wavering, since he who promised is faithful. The promise rode into town on Palm Sunday. <laughs> we, were, we were there, Jerusalem, just hanging out, going to celebrate Passover. Kids are getting rowdy. Really, we got to eat that stuff again. The bread you give us, but that's not any good. And the people were there, and Rome is, you know, across town. Emperor's riding into town. He's got his processional. You can call that the triumph. I've taught that before. So the Roman governor, the guard, riding into town from this way with his processional, with his triumph proclaiming all the victories that he had and showing off his captors, riding into town, making sure everybody knows I'm the van, I'm the guy in charge, it's me, and don't you forget it. 
And you have all these Jews, these Israelites, they're in town and they're sick and tired of that guy. They're sick and tired of him coming in and putting his thumb where it doesn't belong and oppressing them. And you've got people that have just been burdened on that first Palm Sunday. And Christ comes riding in and his triumph looked different. See, for Rome, their triumph was horses and chariots and gold. And, and they would even say sometimes they would lead captors in and they would have them in chains that were made out of gold because it showed the excess of Roman authority and Roman power and Roman wealth. And you see that coming in, but then on this side, here comes this triumph. And there was a few disciples walking around in old sandals. A king, instead of riding on a horse, a white horse of victory, he comes in on a donkey. And he's riding into town and the people said, you know what, I think this just might be the guy that gets rid of that guy. And he comes riding in and then, and then the people begin to chant, save us. Save us. Save us now. Save us now. Save us. And Christ's triumph looks like this. The Bible says that he took captivity captive and he gave gifts to men. His triumph means that in all things we can sustain and, and we can exist in Christ. His triumph meant that no longer were we under the oppression the impression of, of trying to get everything right, but rather we had been set free from the very throes of sin. His triumph meant, as he rode in, as humble as, as it was, his triumph meant a new way for you and I. Palm Sunday was the beginning of Passion Week when Christ ultimately would lay his life down for his children, would lay his life down for the sins of man. But this triumph, the Bible says in, in 2 Corinthians 2.14, Now thanks be unto God who always causes us to triumph in Christ Jesus. And as he's riding into town, what he literally was doing was bringing triumph with him. And triumph looked like Jesus. Triumph is the Messiah. Triumph means that you and I have a new way. That everything that we were before and all of our shortcomings and all of our faults and all of our failures have been triumphed over in the cross. Palm Sunday, just as Israel no longer needed the wilderness, because they had something new. For you and I today, church, we no longer need anything but Jesus. That's all we need. Jesus. All right. Worship team, you can come up. I was talking to that person on, I had gotten that squabble with, and I was trying to tell them about freedom. Galatians 5, stand fast, therefore, in the liberty wherewith Christ has made you free and not be entangled again with the yoke of bondage and can't hear it. Try to tell people that we've been set free from the law to walk in newness of life, that we have a new law written on the tables of our heart. The new law written in the tables of our heart allows us to know and hear his will. Jesus said that, that he come to inaugurate a new way, that we love the Lord with all of our heart and we love our neighbor as ourselves. And see, so when, when, when we're singing, when we're worshiping like we did this morning, see, what we're celebrating is the triumph came and his name was Jesus. Triumph rode into town on a donkey and his name was Jesus. And the provision, the guardianship of the law has come to an end. And you and I now are under the guardianship of the Holy Spirit that resides inside of us. And I'm convinced, church, when you listen to the witness, the testimony of the Holy Spirit, all the things that people wonder about, well, what does that mean about the law? What does that mean about sin? I can tell you this. 
when the presence of the Holy Spirit, when it has indwelled you and you begin to walk after what Christ said, to love the Lord with all of your heart and to love your neighbor as yourself, I can promise you that sin will take care of itself. I promise you it will. I say it all the time and it makes people uncomfortable because they think that I'm trying to tell them that sin doesn't matter. And actually, if you know me, I really believe the exact opposite of that. Because when I see believers doing things that I think is wrong, it makes me mad and I want to punch them in the nose. So yes, some of you I've wanted to punch in the nose. Sometimes I want to punch myself right in the nose. You see what? What I want you to celebrate today is this new covenant, this new life. I want you to celebrate that our victory came riding into town on that first Palm Sunday. And you and I today have been set free. Now you and I are enjoying blessings that we are not responsible for. For Israel, they enjoyed wells that they did not dig, fruits that they did not plant, homes that they did not build. I don't know exactly if you believe this with me or not today, but I'm going to tell you right now. I am enjoying a freedom in Christ that I'm not responsible for. I am enjoying salvation that I had nothing to do with. I can stand here, church, before the Lord and lift my hands and give him thanks and praise in the very throne room where he exists, and it did not come through my merit. I am enjoying the promised land, and I had nothing to do with it. I don't even know what song they're going to sing, but we're going to stand today, and we're going to sing it because our promise, our triumph rode into town that Palm Sunday. Amen?